So last time we were kind of looking at the, we were talking about the, the kind of shape of the Gospels and how to read the Gospels and what we're approaching as we get to the Gospels. And we said that they were stories, they were historical stories. And so there's a historical context, there's a world that we're going into. And so tonight we are looking at the world and the background of the Gospels. So I thought we'd start with kind of a group exercise. So we're, we're getting in, as I say, we're getting into the world and the background, the theological context of the Gospels. And so, uh, well, Jesus, uh, Paul in Galatians, talking about Jesus coming into the world and uh, all that, talks about him coming in the fullness of time. In other words, what Paul is saying is he hasn't just turned up at any random point. There's something about the time that Jesus uh, came which is um, important. And, and none of the Gospels think that they're just beginning a new story. They all think that they are part of a much bigger story. And so tonight we're kind of asking, what is the story that they are telling? Um, so we, we, as I say, we're going to dive into the world and the theology of the Gospels. Now, obviously, if you have a Bible, um, you will know. Well, actually, I don't need to use this. I can, I've got a visual demonstration right here. This is, a, this is what a Bible would look like, what your Bible would look like, if instead of having you know, pages so thin you could smoke, and uh, double columns. This is a Bible that's kind of laid out nicely on nice thick pages. So this is a full-size Bible. And I think this shows us something. How much of this is New Testament? Just these two. So it's a really small little slither on the Bible. Sorry for everyone who can't see. I shall hold it up. All right, just got this small slither of New Testament here. The point is that when the gospel writers sit down to start writing their stories, they don't think that they're just kind of starting afresh. They know that they're part of a much, much bigger story. So before we, I kind of get into it and we do some actual in-depth teaching, I'm going to first do some group work. So in your tables, what I want you to do, I'm going to give you 10 minutes, try and come up with a kind of punchy uh, five to 10 point summary of the whole Old Testament as much as you can. And... Uh, and afterwards, we'll kind of go through the tables, and you just and you, you know you can make it you can make it rhyme. You could give it a bit of a scheme, or it could just be very functional. Just this happens, this happens, this happens. But so ten minutes summarize the Old Testament as best you can. I'm not going to be marking them. It's not as I would have done it. It's you do it. So ten minutes, go for it. Well, um, I think that's a really good kind of place to begin because we're already getting our heads into kind of thinking, okay, what is the story? that is being thought through. And there's a bit of a tendency, I think, in uh, evangelicalism to undermine or, or uh, put the Old Testament and the story that it has a little bit to the side. I heard one person describe uh, the average Christian view of the Old Testament is it's a book of references thoroughly organized. You know, it, it's just where Paul goes to, to dip in and um, take something every now and again. But um, so, I mean, things like this. So this is the four points often used as an evangelistic tool. Now, I'm not dissing this in itself, but if we just think about this as it applies to the whole story, so this is used, in, as I say, in an evangelism tool, but more than that. So the heart, you have God's love for his people and his creation. This is kind of summarizing the story of the Bible. Then you have the fall. Humans decide to rebel against God. And then you have Jesus, who comes and offers um, forgiveness of sins and sets people free. And then there's the response, what do you do about it? Now, as I say, I get the purpose of this. It's serving a good purpose. But often, this is the average view of the Bible as a whole. And the problem with this is you've got Genesis 1 and 2, God's love for creation. Genesis 3, full, 
Matthew 1, Jesus comes along. And it misses all the stuff that goes on in the middle. And it misses the fact that Jesus wasn't just a preacher of timeless truths. So if Jesus were to turn up in first century China and saying the things that he said, it would have made absolutely no sense to those people. He didn't just come to talk about good and evil. He came to talk about a story being fulfilled, a story that was very much known. So as I say, tonight we're talking about the theology of first century Israel. But also, so the first half we're going to talk about the theology. Second half we're going to talk about the social setting. And it's, it's important to say to kind of split apart in this culture their theology, their religious beliefs, and their culture, who they are and what they do, is, is kind of um, artificial. So just bear that in mind, as we, because as we talk about the theology, some of the culture is going to come out, and as we talk about the culture, some of the theology will come out. So, the story so far, what is being thought? So we talked about um, that kind of story of the Old Testament. And... I want us to kind of think about the Old Testament big picture with what some of the, one of the really big themes. Now, there's lots of things you can use to summarize the story of the Old Testament. So you could go by the covenants. You could go by the kind of the promises of the Messiah or by the temples. I think something that was being thought a lot in the first century and a, a thing that we could look at is the exiles. So if you just think about the Old Testament for a moment, the first story is a story of exile. There they are, God's people, dwelling with a holy God in a, in a holy place. They then are exiled from that land into the wilderness. And so there's kind of that, the big story of the people, humanity, have been moved into exile into the wilderness. From then on, you have loads of mini exile stories. So Abraham leaves his father's house and goes into the wilderness. Jacob's sons, there's a, a famine in the land, and, or, or even Joseph. Joseph is exiled to Egypt. His sons leave their, their, um, their home because of the famine, and they end up in Egypt. They're exiled there. When the, when the book of Exodus picks up, Moses is exiled from Egypt, goes into Midian, and then comes back. So I've kind of done, I hope this is understandable, that um, they're supposed to be the, the, the further down you go is where it comes in the story, and the smaller they are is kind of the mininess of the exile. So you've got that overarching exile that we never see restoration from with Adam and Eve. You see the sons of Jacob going down into Egypt. Uh, you see Moses being exiled out into Midian. And the, in the Exodus story, notice this. There, 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 there Israel are in Egypt, in captivity, in exile, and God says, I'm going to rescue you and bring you to myself. I'm going to restore you. So he takes them from Egypt, and they begin that process of restoration. And then just before they get there, they, you know, they, they cross the Red Sea. They have that amazing moment uh, of, of God's salvation being shown. And then they get to the promised land, and then they disobey. And you have then another mini exile story, as now they're exiled right on the border of the promised land to wander around for 40 years. And then just like the first exodus, now they again cross through water and the Jordan River parts and they cross over the Jordan River and they come into the promised land. So in the story of Exodus, you've actually got lots of different exiles and restoration stories. And then the Old Testament ends with Judah having returned from the exile in captivity and they come back into the promised land. Now, if you look on your handout, you'll see that I've kind of done a bit of a graphic here. So we've got Genesis begins with them being exiled out into the wilderness. Deuteronomy ends with them being in the wilderness about to go into the promised land. So it's kind of like you've got um, bookends in the Pentateuch in the first five books. The Old Testament ends in a funny kind of a way. Because does it end 
like how Deuteronomy ends with them waiting to go back in, or does it end how the Pentateuch begun with them back in the Promised Land? It's this funny kind of thing where um, they're back in the land, but it's just not right. They wouldn't be happy to call it restoration. So Nehemiah says in the quote I've put there, we are slaves in our own land. It's kind of like how I suppose a modern um, analogy might be like, lockdown ended, there was an official kind of end date. But then so many areas of life were still affected that it's like, it's ended, but has it ended? And this very much seems to be the opinion that um, held on into the first century. So this is a quote from N.T. Wright. He says, most Jews of this period, that's the first century, it seems would have answered this question, where are we, in language which reduced to its simplest form meant we are still in exile. They believed that in all the senses which mattered, Israel's exile was still in progress. Although she had come back from Babylon, the glorious message of the prophets remained unfulfilled. Israel still remained in the thrall to foreigners, and worse, Israel's God had not returned to Zion. So, they're back in the land, but something's just not quite right. And this is important to see, exile isn't just about geography. The promised land isn't just about being in a nice place. The promised land is about being in the holy presence of God. But more than that, when Israel are restored, it means they are restored to be what they are called to be in the Abrahamic promise, to be a blessing to all the nations, um, to, to be this kind of kingdom that is, stands out in the world. And so restoration, as I say, doesn't necessarily just mean we get back to the land, but we become what God wants us to be. But, as I put this on the handout, uh, Isaiah had prophesied that God would bring a new exodus. This is one of the big themes in Isaiah. Uh, Israel would be restored to what they never were before. Uh, the nations would flow in. The true heir of David would reign with righteousness and justice, and God's presence would return to the temple. These are all just things that uh, come up in, in Isaiah. Specifically, <clears throat> in the last 17 chapters of Isaiah. Now, why is that significant? Because we know what Jews in the first century were reading. And we know that they had a lectionary. And so if you were to go to synagogue, you knew that every week a portion of the Torah was being read. So you've got this first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. You knew that a section of this was being read. Okay, but they want to teach all the Bible. Now, there's three other books they have to get to on top of the Torah, right? So they have to make some decisions, which parts are we going to read? And what we know is that two-thirds of the readings that they used to supplement the, the Torah were from Isaiah, that tiny little section, and two-thirds of those Isaiah readings were from the last 17 chapters, so what that means is 44% of all the readings you would have heard in the synagogue to explain the Torah were from this book of restoration you find in, in Isaiah. So when you're kind of reading through Isaiah and thinking to yourself, man, this sounds like it's talking about Jesus. That's what they were all thinking, except they didn't know his name was Jesus. This, is a, this concept of restoration that one day our exile is going to end, this is huge in their mind. Uh, the, the kind of... I think you can call it fever pitch. I think I've actually put on page two. Yeah, so uh, where are we in the story now? Exile is seen as an ongoing reality. But hope is very much alive. And there is an expectation that has reached 
fever pitch. So uh, we see in the Gospels that there were lots of uh, people of this time period who were claiming to be the Messiah, who were claiming to be the people who have fulfilled this. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to do a, a few uh, Bible readings. So open up to, could someone open up to Luke chapter 2, verse 25, and read that out loud for us? I'll give you some context. This is when Jesus is going to the temple as a baby, and Simeon is there, and he's going to bless him. So if someone could read Luke 2, 25. Fantastic. So there he is, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that on its own isn't going isn't to be much, but here we have a man who's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Could someone read just a few verses later, verse 38, about Anna the prophetess? There you go. So we have someone else in the same passage who's there longingly waiting for the restoration of Jerusalem. And then if someone could read Acts chapter 5, verses 35 to 39, just after two of the disciples have been put on trial and they're let free. And uh, yeah, so Acts 5, 35 to 39. Thank you very much. So there's kind of four examples just off the bat from the Gospels. You've got uh, Thevdas, you've got um, Judas the Galilean, and then you've got Anna and Simeon both there kind of saying, you know, it's coming now. So there's this real expectation in the land of Israel. Now the question I want us to consider is, did they have good reason for this very present expectation? To, to put it another way, um, we hopefully all believe that Jesus is coming back. That's a good hope to have. Am I expecting it's going to happen next week? I'm certainly not living like it. And I don't know anyone who's actually living like they think that Jesus is going to come back next week. But these people are living like the Messiah is going to come any day now. So why are they thinking like that? Do they have good reason for it? And if you've seen any handout, the answer is yes. So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 9. Now I should say... In fact, this goes for everything we're looking at tonight. Almost every section of tonight could take an evening in its own right. So I'm very much condensing all the things that uh, could be said about this. So it will be a little quicker than some people would like. 
But uh, so I'm not even going to actually read the passage in full. I'm just going to explain it. But Daniel chapter nine is this uh, chapter where Daniel in exile in Babylon is reading the prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says that, uh, that Judah is going to be restored. And he kind of prays, Lord, how long is it going to be? Jeremiah says 70 years. The 70 years have happened. People have gone back. doesn't seem like the restoration's happened. And then the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel, and he, he gives him this, this prophecy, and he says there's going to be 70 weeks of years. So if you imagine a day is a year, a week of years, therefore is seven years, so 70 weeks of years, 490 years. And he goes through all these things that he says are going to happen. And the first thing he says is, he says, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem onwards, there will be 62 uh, weeks and seven weeks. And as I say, there's some debate about whether they should be two separate time periods or just one. I'm just condensing it. For our purposes, there are 483 years that he promises. After those 483 years, the Messiah is going to come, Daniel was told. And he'll come for one week, so seven years, and in the middle of that, he's going to die. And then after that, it doesn't actually say what happens in the second half of the week, but um, the point is, it says that there's this period of Jerusalem being rebuilt, and then the Messiah is going to come. Now, there's ambiguities about when we should start dating the 490 years and when we should finish. As I say, I'm just condensing. But suffice it to say, in the first century, they had worked out, it's about now. So, um, just to give my own opinion, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, we find this in Ezra 7, and we know that it happened in about 458 uh, or 457 BC. King Artaxerxes decreed it. So, you count 483 years, you end up at 26 to 27 AD. Uh, lo and behold, who started their ministry in 26, 27 AD? Three and a half years later, 30 AD, the Messiah was cut off and had nothing. Um, and then the latter half, now as I say, I'm not going to go into all of this, but the, the, the 70 years are finished in 33 AD when Israel is restored and now the mission goes to the Gentiles. It's three and a half years after Jesus dies that Peter goes to the Gentiles. As I say, we won't get too bogged down at that. But just to say, God has kind of given a countdown. He's given a clock to when the Messiah is going to turn up. And the Jews of this period knew it. There was a real expectation, as I say, because they were reading the prophets and they found these things in there. Um, so a group who we're going to look at later, the Essenes, who are the people who gave us our Dead Sea Scrolls, we find loads of writing where they're going on and on and on and on about the 70 weeks. Like, oh, what's going to happen when the 70 weeks comes? You know, and so clearly this is on their mind. So unsurprisingly, people are waiting for the Messiah to turn up. So that's a very, very brief overview. I'm just going to finish the first half there. But so we've got in first century Israel a real sense of exile theology. We're in exile. If there's one thing I want us to understand from the Gospels is that's the general thought of the average Jew on the street that Jesus is interacting with. We are longing for exile to be over. Um, there's a real sense that return is coming, and return isn't just going to be we move someone new. It's going to be God making us something new. And then lastly, it's that they've got that real reason for the fulfillment. So uh, another bit of group work we're going to do, just quickly this one. I've, uh, everyone should have six pieces of paper on their table. It, it's two, three stories, two copies of each. So we've got the story of the prodigal son, the story of John baptizing in the wilderness, and the story of uh, Jesus in John 10 as the good shepherd. I'm only going to kind of give six minutes for this. All I want you to do is, in light of the things that we've just been looking at, especially that exile and restoration theology, just read through these stories 
and see if there's anything in there that you hadn't noticed before that might have rung in the ears of these first century Jews. Now, if you don't see anything new, that's fine because you're just reading Bible, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But do have a look and see if there's anything that strikes you um, that you wouldn't have necessarily before. Cool. Six minutes. Right, folks, should we bring our conversations to an end? Uh, I, I won't go table by table. I just wonder if anyone wants to share anything. Um, feel free to just pipe up and tell us what you read and what you noticed. It's that bit when someone's thinking, I've got something to say, but I'll wait for someone else to go first. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and also, uh, this, I'm not, this isn't by no means a contradiction, it's absolutely the case. You think about what the average uh, Jew would think when some guy, you know, there's plenty of water all around Israel, why is he going out to the Jordan and baptizing people? I mean, they're reading, they're, they're saying this is to Isaiah, they realize that he's making a new Exodus statement. The last time Israel passed through the Jordan was when God was bringing them into the promised land. Um, anything else? Thanks, Andy. Absolutely, yeah, and and I know we're not doing Paul, but uh, you go to Paul's letters, and like I said earlier, exile is bigger than just a geographic concept. It's a kind of a spiritual concept, and Paul seems to be saying, "You Gentiles, you didn't even realize you were in exile, and now the Lord is calling you to come in as well. Now you're welcome to come and be restored." Um, yeah, so thank you, thank you, Joyce. That's excellent. Right, let's let's move on. Um, so we're going to the world of the Gospels now, and uh, if you were at Men for the Master on Friday, um, then you would have already heard this, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time, well I'm going to kill two birds with one stone here, um, I'll say what, how I mean in a, in a moment, but if we're talking about the world of the Gospels, we should spend some time with our, asking the question, what is a Gospel? Now I think we probably all know, what does the word Gospel mean? Good news, right. But is it just good news? So would someone uh, who spoke Greek as their first language have said, um, so the, the word is evangelion, where we get evangelist from and um, all those things, would they have said, evangelion, my wife has given birth? Is it just kind of good news? No, it's a bit more specific than that. And, and evangelion, a, a, a gospel, was normally a pronouncement of a victory of a king or ruler or captain over his foes or uh, some wonderful thing that they've done which now directly, directly affects the people under their rule. So, this is a gospel, this inscription we have. It's called the pre-end calendar inscription from 9 BC. 
Now, I'm just going to tell you about this gospel. This is the gospel of the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind. And his name is Caesar Augustus. So all across the empire, these gospel inscriptions would have come around. Augustus has been made savior of all mankind, and his birth has signaled the beginning of the gospel for all the world. He is the son of God. When he died, Augustus was said to have ascended to the right hand of his father, Julius Caesar. Okay, so uh, when the Roman army would win a victory, again, they would have these inscriptions around. The gospel of the victory of Augustus or Claudius or whoever. So, the, a gospel, when Peter sits down, or when Mark sits down, and begins his gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, think about how they would have heard that. They're about to read this pronouncement of victory, and it, it seems to be that he's actually parodying what's said about Caesar. I mean, it's, it's so political. Uh, we like to kind of separate our religion from our politics. You can't do that in the ancient world. It's so political when when. Um, Mark says, the gospel, the saviour of all mankind, the son of God. Oh, you're talking about Caesar. Nope, I'm talking about a carpenter from Nazareth. And so what that means is when we're talking about the gospel, we often talk about how that affects us, which it is good news. So we might talk about, for instance, that we can be made right with God through faith, justification by faith, and call that the gospel. And that is indeed good news. But then we start saying things like, well, the gospel is never actually explained in the gospels. You know, Jesus never explains justification by faith. But we find the gospel in Paul's letters, not in the gospels, which is a funny place we get into. Because actually, the gospel is the objective pronouncement of the victory of God. And so the gospels are indeed the gospel. Anyway. So I just wanted to give that as a kind of a cultural background to what we mean by Gospels. Um, so just so we know what we're talking about. Now, as I said, it's kind of killing two birds with one stone because by showing the pre-end inscription, the statements made about Caesar, it tells us a little something about Roman rule and life for them. And We're going to talk about the political context a little bit now. Um, so they are living under Rome. Uh, the Roman Empire is uh, the most powerful empire to have been around in this period. And unlike previous empires, the Roman Empire isn't trying to change you and your children to make, us, to make you like us. So Babylon takes everyone back to Babylon and makes them Babylonians. Alexander the Great takes Greece to them. You're all going to become Greeks. You're all going to speak Greek and learn Greek and do Greek stuff. Rome says, no, you don't need to become Romans. You don't need to speak Latin. You just need to pay your taxes, honor Caesar, and honor the Roman gods. And this kind of becomes the most effective foreign policy you find in the ancient world because everyone says, well, if that's all we have to do, that's fine. Meanwhile, Rome is growing and growing and growing and is getting more and more power. So it's, it's brilliant. The problem is when you get to a place like Judea and the Jews say, no, we're not going to honor Caesar. We're not going to um, worship your gods. They either have to say, right, okay, well, we're going to have to spend a lot of manpower destroying you guys, or they have to come to a compromise. So they do. And uh, Judah is given this kind of special privilege of being uh, a client state which is, has its own beliefs and practices, and they know that they're not going to be honoring the gods. They're not going to be worshiping Caesar. Uh, they have their one god, and that's fine, and you can do your silly things like Sabbaths. There's a great story from when the Romans were attacking Jerusalem in 43 BC, 
And uh, the story goes that the Romans got so frustrated that every Saturday the Jews stopped fighting because it was Sabbath. And the Romans like, how lazy can you be to not want to fight? And, and they said, well, sorry, we, we, we don't do that. And it's so funny because you don't get a concept of, the, of a day off in the ancient world. Anyway, I digress. So uh, Rome does have a few strings to pull, though. So the first thing they do is that they have their puppet, Herod, in charge. Now, they don't like Herod because to be a king in Judah, you should most definitely be Jewish. And secondly, you should be a king from the line of David. David is the kingly line. Herod is not descended from David, and he's not even a Jew. He's an Edomite. So if you read the Old Testament, you find the Edomites are the cousins of Israel, but they hate them, bitter enemies. And now an Edomite is king over them. Now, uh, Herod knows that he's not in a great position. He knows that his domestic policy is going to be strained. So he reads the scriptures, and he thinks, what do great kings do? They build temples. So he decides to do this massive project of renovating the temple. So Solomon's temple, the first temple was kind of beautiful. When the second temple was built, we read in Haggai and Zechariah that everyone was a bit disappointed with it. And then Herod comes along and it's renamed Herod's Temple because he does this amazing expansion on it and really pushes it out. So um, Herod comes along now. Herod is a brute. He kills anyone who stands in his path. The story of all the infants killed in Bethlehem that we find in Matthew, that we'll be talking about when we do Matthew, is not attested anywhere else. We don't have any other historical document that, that talks about it. And in former days, um, more critical scholars would have said something like, uh, therefore Matthew made it up. But actually, nowadays, even people who aren't particularly friendly to Christianity are saying, no, actually, from what we know about Herod, this is a small town. Not many people would be talking about it if he did decide to kill the babies in it, but this does fit his character. He was a tyrant. So he does this temple-building project. Now, he dies, and as he dies, he leaves four uh, what we call tetrarchs, Greek for literally just four kings in his place. So when we're reading through the Gospels, the Herod we're talking about in the middle of Luke is not the same as the Herod from the birth narrative. That's Herod the Great. He dies in 4 BC, uh, and then there's different Herods in different part of the country. So uh, now the Herodian dynasty is kind of like a pantomime villain for, for first century Jews. You want someone that we can all agree is pretty um, rubbish, look at Herod. And so he's um, always kind of in the background. This, this, he is the expression of what it means to be an exile. We have an Edomite ruling over us who's just a puppet of the Romans. And the Romans have also got their own priesthood in the temple. So people aren't very happy about this. Rome thinks that everyone's good. Everyone else thinks they're not good. Okay, so that's kind of a bit of the political context. Um, I'm just, as I say, I'm aware of times. So I'm just going to speed through a little bit. Now, the most important thing I think we need to talk about is the Jewish culture of the day. Jesus is a Jew. He's coming into that culture. He's speaking to the Jews. Now, if you hear the phrase first century Judaism, what you want to do is you want to add a little S in there, right? Because actually, it's much better to talk about first century Judaisms, because there are some very, very different expressions in the first century of what it means to be a Jew. And we see this in the Gospels. We see the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, going off. 
So I, I just think it's important. So if you turn to the last page on your handout, uh, we're going to look at some of these Judaisms. Now I've left a section, the attitudes of the kingdom of God, blank. Now as we go, I'm just going to kind of let you fill in uh, what their attitude to the kingdom of God is. So first up, we have a group called the Essenes. We talked about them a little bit earlier. The Essenes are by far the strictest sect of Judaism. They are so strict that the fact that there is an Edomite king and a non-Aaronic priesthood, not descended from Aaron, that they will not even dwell in Jerusalem. And so they go off into the desert and they form their own community. So it was that community, as I say, that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls for us. The reason they were preserved is because they were out in the desert. They weren't in the main towns. So they're very strict. They are ascetics, which means that they fast all the time. They don't have families. They only grow um, through proselytization. So John the Baptist, for instance, was probably in a scene. If you read the Gospels, his parents are very old. They probably likely died when he was about 12. So what's he doing out in the wilderness? He's probably in a scene. Um, so they, they lived in the desert. They did a lot of reading and a lot of copying scripture and basically waited around for the end of the world. And that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. What I more mean by that is the Essenes are what we might call determinists. They basically think God is going to act. The kingdom is going to come. When it does come, there's going to be two messiahs, a kingly messiah and a priestly messiah, and nothing we do will make any difference about when it's going to come. But the way that they would describe themselves is they are the advanced guard of the kingdom of God. They are the deposit that God is going to act. You want proof that God hasn't forgotten his people? We're here. That's what they'd say. So very hopeful that the kingdom of God is coming. Um, in the meantime, everyone else in Israel is corrupt and we are the true Israel. So that's the Essenes. We don't actually see them in the Gospels except for John, and John is only arguably an Essene. We do see the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are aristocrats. They're the ruling class of high priests, and uh, they are quite happy with the way everything is going as it is. Why is that? Because they're in charge. So they're not really so keen on this idea of a kingdom of God. You know, we're the Jews, you know, and God's there. We've got the one God, but we don't, we're quite happy, God, if you don't act. You know, we're quite fine as we are. Now, they are kind of the closest thing that you get to atheists in the ancient world. You, don't, you just don't get atheists in the ancient world. It's not something that anyone would have heard of. But, so they believe God is there, that he did do the things that the Bible says, but now he dwells kind of out there in the heavens. He's not involved here. And there's nothing more than just the, the, the material. So we don't have souls. We don't have spirits. Prayer is pointless. There is no afterlife. If you do good, then you get rewarded in this life. If you do bad, you get um, paid uh, judgment, uh, justice in this life. So none of this prayer malarkey, none of this resurrection from the dead, none of this heaven stuff. Um, so uh, they're kind of, that, that's their vibe, really. Um, they're happy with the status quo. Uh, nothing needs to change. Meanwhile, the, the zealots... Now, some people would argue that the zealots shouldn't be their own kind of class, but they do stand out quite a lot because their whole thing is basically so long as Israel has any involvement with Gentiles, we are not who God wants us to be. What's not so clear is, in their mind, when Israel comes out on top, 
are the Gentiles going to be in subjection to us or are we just going to not bother about them? They're just kind of further afield. All we know is, so long as Israel is free of pagan rule, life is good. So by any means necessary, we've got to get rid of Rome. They are fiercely nationalistic. Anyone who is okay with the way things are or who hasn't vocally joined their movement may as well be on Team Rome. So that, that's the uh, zealots. Now, lastly, the Pharisees. Now, I've already used this phrase once. So I'm going to use it again. Not the pantomime villains that you might expect. If you ask, who are the baddies of the Gospels? It's obvious, isn't it? The Pharisees. Oh, you Pharisee. But the Pharisees are a bit more complicated than that. They are basically as a movement that began when Israel returned from Babylon. And the thinking was quite logical. Covenant faithlessness is what took us into exile. Covenant faithfulness is what's going to lead us to restoration. And we have uh, this document from the Pharisees where they're describing what their job is. And they describe themselves as the one whose job it is to put a fence around the law. So if faithlessness to God's law sends us into exile, then we want to be careful that we don't even get close to crossing the lines. So if God says, you can't do this, then we'll add a few extra rules so we don't get there. Now, we can see by the time of the Gospels that this has got pretty dire and Jesus critiques them for it, but the heart is in the right place at the beginning. They are very much of the opinion that God will act, he is going to act, the kingdom is going to come, it's going to be wonderful when it does, and when he acts, we don't want to be like our forefathers who are found faithless. We want to be found faithful to God. And so this means they kind of take on this role as being the unofficial Torah police, you know, when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the cornfields and they're plucking grains, who is there with their eyes on them? Of course, the Pharisees. They've, they've traveled outside of the cities and towns just to keep their eyes on this uh, potential uh, Messiah claimant. It's, it's I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to try and be controversial, but I think there's a few modern parallels we could add, especially in the age of social media, of the unofficial thought police. But... Um, uh, the Pharisees are very much of the opinion that God is going to act, that prayer is an, an important discipline for believers to do, that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead, uh, that if you die and have done good and have been punished for it, you will be vindicated in the afterlife. And so I'm just going to add a bit more on the Pharisees because I think this is important. Jesus' criticisms of them is not like the criticisms he makes of the others. He criticizes the Sadducees for not believing what God has spoken. So being unbelievers. He criticizes the Zealots for being unfaithful to what it means to be Israel. His criticisms of the Pharisees are like the criticisms of an insider. So I was trying to think of an analogy for this, and the best I can kind of come up with is like, so we're a charismatic church. We want to pursue and seek the gifts of the Spirit. If there was a cessationist, someone who doesn't believe those things are for today, were to come to us, their critique might be, why are you pursuing these things? That's not what the Bible says. You shouldn't be doing that, right? But someone who agreed with us might critique the ways in which we're going about doing it. We haven't got the, you know, the, the regulations or too many regulations or we're not making the atmosphere for it. The... the um, critiques of an insider would be very different from the critiques of an outsider. And so Jesus comes to the Pharisees and says, basically, you're taking the project off the rails. F 
Faithfulness is good. Putting a burden on people's backs is not good. And so the Pharisees kind of get this special line of fire because they're the ones who are so close to getting it right. Now, when you go into the book of Acts, you find that when Paul is on trial, what he says is, I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee, because I believe in the resurrection of the dead and believe it has happened with Jesus rising from the dead. So Paul isn't saying, I became a Christian, I'm not a Pharisee anymore. He's saying it's because of my beliefs as a Pharisee that I now believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, the great event we were waiting for. So as I put it on the handout and I've worded it slightly differently here, as much as we might like to hear it, as much as we may not like to hear it out loud, Christianity is the spiritual successor of the Pharisees. If we have to choose one of the groups of Judaisms um, from the first century, we look an awful lot like them. So, as I say, they are the baddies in the Gospels, but they're baddies for a reason. And, uh, yeah, we're not too far away. So, um, I'm going to bring it to a close uh, in a sec. I just want to say there is one... Oh, no, actually, I I do love this. I need to say this. Often today in the church, there's there's a kind of a pejorative phrase that gets thrown around. There's the majority of the church throughout church history has believed something along the lines of the church is the fulfillment of what God meant for Israel. And so the church can legitimately refer to itself as Israel and read the Old Testament and say, these are our promises. Now, in the last kind of century or so, uh, a certain group has, has arise, uh, arisen which says that's replacement theology. That's the word they use. You can't say you've replaced Israel. And as much as I don't like the phrase replacement theology, there's a quote, again, from N.T. Wright, which I do find quite funny. Because when you look at the first century, you find all these different groups of Jews who are looking at all the other groups of Jews and saying, they're false Israel, we're true Israel. And N.T. Wright says this, when people say that replacement theology has forgotten the Jewishness of its religion, they need to be reminded that replacement theology is about the most Jewish thing about Christianity. (laughs) <laughs> it's the sense in which this is what they're all doing. And when Jesus comes along and says, I'm reforming Israel around myself, that's not something new. That's what um, the prophets have, have promised would happen. So even with all these pluriform groups, they all have one uniting feature, the temple. Any group, any of these four sects we've looked at, if you were to ask them, what is your symbol, they would all say the same thing, the temple. For the Sadducees, this is the uh, evidence that we are something. You know, they're the high priests. The temple is the, the capital of Israel. For the Pharisees, this is the promise. This is the deposit that God is going to act. For the Zealots, this is like their rallying cry. This is their flag. When the, when the Gentiles are gone, we can worship here like we're supposed to. For the Essenes, it's this one is false, but a new one is coming. There's a new temple. So... That's kind of a rallying cry for nationalism, and I just wanted to kind of leave it with that because Jesus comes along. We're going to be looking at Jesus' theology next time, and Jesus has some pretty radical things to say about the temple, which would have shook up a lot of people. So let's do a quick recap as we finish of what we looked at. We've looked at the Old Testament background of exile and restoration, looked at the first century expectation of fulfillment, looked briefly at the political context of Judea, and the pluriform Judaisms of Jesus' day. Now, as I say, each one of those could have been an hour or two in their own right, so I did have to just rush through. So in light of that, if there is any questions, do feel free to ask them.